Okay, so also, for whatever reason, uh, the pattern of this study has been that I've made some sort of big confession before we start about me and my life. One night it was on, on antihistamines. Another night it's that I was dyslexic. Um, so here's my confession for tonight. Um, tonight starts about an eight to ten week run where, frankly, I'm going to be very distracted for the next eight to ten weeks. And I think my sister-in-law, Renee, can tell you why. Do you know why? Okay, who said that? Okay, Hannah said it. Hannah knows. The Stanley Cup playoffs started tonight. No, but, but Steve did find this and bring it to me. So this is, ex I, I'm going to be like watching the, the Stanley Cup playoffs like this. Kind of doing this thing here. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so the Stanley Cup playoffs the next 8 to 10 weeks, very distracted. I don't know if I'll even be able to preach for the next 10 weeks. I'll just have Josh and Cody do it. Anyway, we're in Zechariah. We're wrapping up tonight. So we looked at the introduction, which is the first six verses of the book. <clears throat> it's funny how Zechariah is called a minor prophet, but it's 14 chapters long, and it's the third most quoted prophet in the New Testament. And you can really tell, even sun, this last Sunday, Josh mentioned that Jesus was quoting from Zechariah, you know. Um, so the intro was six verses. We looked at the eight visions, which go from the middle of chapter one to the middle of chapter six. Then there's that little summary or wrap-up section at the end of chapter six, and then we looked at true, what I called true religion last week with chapter seven and eight. So we have... Um, Six chapters tonight. Now, I'm not going to read every verse, so you can rest easy about that. Um, but we are going to talk about leaders, shepherds, corruption, the Messiah, and the kingdom. Those are the big themes. And mostly what we find in these last six chapters are oracles that Zechariah preaches 20 or 30 years after all these visions take place. So we're in the late, I'm sorry, the early 400s, which it's B.C., so the early 400s would be 490, 480, somewhere in there, okay? So it's weird math. It's like high school geometry. So, um, But uh, these are oracles that he preaches. An oracle is a type of sermon or a message, but it's a message of both rebuke and hope. So there's a strong component of rebuke. It's going to be painful for some people. But then there's always this, there's always this it always lands on, on, on hope. So um, starting with chapter 9, just the first eight verses I'm just going to summarize. Uh, because we've looked at this theme already in the series. It's once again God explaining that Israel's enemies are going to be judged. So this is more about, you know, Assyria, Syria, Tyre and Sidon, uh, Philistia. Um, and geographically in the book, okay, so I'm going to turn around and pretend you have a map. I purposely didn't, I could have had a map, but I purposely didn't to, to try and demonstrate it a different way. Um, in, the, in, the, in the book, in chapter 9, it describes the enemies starting in the northeast, so Assyria and Nineveh, and sweeping all the way counterclockwise down to the southwest, so it describes Assyria, Syria, or Damascus, Tyre and Sidon, uh, or the Phoenicians, and then all the way down to the five cities of the Philistines, including Gaza, which is one of the main cities there. Okay, But what is really amazing is that verse 7 explains that even people from Ekron, which is one of the five cities of Philistia. Now, you know, if you know your Old Testament history, prior to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, especially with Saul and David, the Philistines were just awful. They were the worst enemy of, of, uh, of Israel. And God is explaining in verse 7 that, that in Ekron, some of these people of Philistine descent are going to be part of the remnant of God. So even, even the most hated enemies of God are going to be part of the remnant. We just need to remember that, that God's grace is for everyone, and that's really hard for us. 
We're getting ready to do Jonah after um, Easter. God, the, the notion of God's grace and mercy for Jonah is scandalous. He hates it. He's really angry with God about it. And, and we can understand why. Um, but God is going to treat these people uh, in uh, Philistia the way David treated the Jebusites in 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6 when he could have wiped them out, but rather he brought them into the kingdom. He graciously brought them uh, in. So it's just a magnificent picture of God's grace. So then you get to uh, chapter 9, verse 9, 9 through 15. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Isn't that just wonderful scheduling for us with Palm Sunday coming up this Sunday? Okay. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be uh, cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. That's a that's a geographical reference of the Mediterranean Sea to the Dead Sea. It doesn't encompass the whole world, but it's a metaphor for the whole world. That's what it means. Okay? And from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, Today I declare that I will restore you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. That's interesting. And wield you like a warrior sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south, the Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the, the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched with the corners of the altar, like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the, as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his, on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. So there's that verse 9, pretty obvious reference in the New Testament to Palm Sunday, Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem. But verse 10 is the one that, that gives so many people in their day and in our day trouble, especially in, today, in today's political climate. Uh, the Messiah is not going to be a military Messiah. He's not an economic Messiah, and he's not a political Messiah, but he's a Messiah of humility, peace, and reconciliation, which incidentally and ironically will give victory, prosperity, and good governance. <laughs> so through peace and humility and subjugation will come the things that we are actually looking for, okay? Okay? And then verse 11 is the reality of the final blood sacrifice of Jesus. And that reference of from the waterless pit, he'll come from the waterless pit. Zechariah is being a good historian of, of uh, Israel there. That is a reference to both Joseph, who was thrown into a well, and Jeremiah, who was thrown into a well. Okay? So they're two pillars of Israel's history. So he's, he's reminding us that the Messiah is going to be one of these pillars of Israel's history and come from the pillars of Israel's history. And then verse 13, the reference to Greece helps us to date these oracles in the early uh, 5th century B.C., like the 490s or 480s, because Greece was just then emerging as a world power at that time. So stop and think about this. If you've been following just since last fall all the Old Testament stuff we've been doing, you know that the history is like, well, the Assyrians were in power, then the Babylonians were in power, then it was the Persians who were in power, then the Greeks came to become the world power, then it was Rome, 
And then from Rome, it started moving up towards Europe until eventually it was England. You, you following this? Okay. So there is this constant cycle of nations rising and falling. You understand that? I had one church history professor who talked about how uh, generally the movement of these uh, nations rising and falling as the world superpowers, generally they're always moving west. Now just stop and think about that. If that's true, the, the nexus of power in the world over the next 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, if that's true, it will jump the Pacific Ocean and the nexus of power will be Maui. No, I'm kidding. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be China. Think about it. You know, and we'll just kind of start the cycle over if, that, if that's true. But th this, this cycle, which is antagonizing and threatening, there's never been a generation that lived without the threat of this. Never been a generation in the history of humanity that lived without the threat of this problem, okay? It's gone on for millennia, and yet how many people tell us today, my platform is I have the answer to this. I can stop all this, right? There's always somebody that's popping up going, eh, I, 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 can, I can do it, I can stop it. My plan will stop, and my plan's different than any plan ever for the last 5,000 years. This one will actually work. Okay. Now, here you go. Hear me. I'm on board with stopping it. I'm on board with stopping it, and I don't blame people for trying. You know, appreciate them trying. But I still, I, there's, I'm, I, I, and I admit, I'm a glass-half-empty kind of a guy, and I tend to lean toward what I think is reality more than fantasy. So I, I don't understand why anybody in any generation believes that this is actually possible, apart from Jesus. Okay. Um, some of you know I got really turned on by the um, author Eric Larson recently. Shelby gave me a book for Christmas, not this past year, but the year before, by Eric Larson. Took me a while to get to it, but it was The Devil in the White City. It was on my top six books of the year from last year. Uh, it's this, it's uh, about the... Um, Chicago World's Fair in 1893 and the architectural and construction challenges of getting it done in time, which I know some of you are like, that doesn't sound very, it was fascinating. But at the same time, there was this parallel story of, of the most prolific serial killer in the history of the United States, believe it or not, um, a guy named H.H. H. Holmes. Some people have theorized that he's actually the, um, who was the guy in London that they never caught? Jack the Ripper, because when he started killing people in the United States, the, the murders of Jack the Ripper in London quit, stopped. So some, anyway, they eventually caught him and executed him in Pennsylvania, but at the same time that they were building the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 and then, and then um, doing the Chicago World's Fair, he was there uh, murdering uh, young women. He was quite the con artist, and he murdered dozens. So Eric Larson shows how these stories kind of meld together. And so I bought another one of his book, uh, books called Thunderstruck. It's about um, the guy who invented wireless, Marconi, and how that story coalesced with the second uh, most notorious murderer in the history of, of London up until that time, a guy named, uh, I think his name is uh, Decker. Not Decker, that's your last name, sorry. Um, Crippen. Crippen. See how Decker Crippen, see how I got that? Anyway, his name was Crippen. Uh, his name was Crippen and how the wireless, Marconi's wireless, actually aided in the capture of, of this murderer in the early uh, 1900s. Fascinating stuff. Here you go. This has a point, okay? And believe me, I want to get out of here too because there's hockey on TV right now. So um, th this has a point. So then I read his most recent book, which is in the Garden of Beasts, which is about... Um, a, a guy named um, William Dodd, who was a professor of history at, at University of Chicago, and he was in his 60s, and he was writing his m memoirs and all that stuff, and uh, Franklin Roosevelt came to him as President of the United States and said, 
we need you to be the ambassador for the United States to Germany. And he was there as the ambassador in Germany from 1933 to 1937 during the rise of Nazism. And he went over, self-described, as a liberal progressive who believed firmly that, that he could um, make peace with Hitler and, and negotiate with Hitler and, and keep Hitler reigned in through reason. <laughs> he was there one year, one year before he started writing President Roosevelt and saying, you got a problem over here and there is no conversation that's going to keep this from happening. And Roosevelt suppressed it and eventually demanded that he resign his post. He did not retire. He did not resign. He was forced out in 1937. Okay? I tell you that story to just say it doesn't work. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not a warmonger, and I don't like war. I don't want to go to war. But war is just a reality. That It's always going to be around. And if ever there was a reason why we needed a Messiah, it's that. We talk about our personal sin and our personal brokenness all the time, but what about this corporate junk that we got going on worldwide? We need a Messiah to set things straight. Anyway, verse 14, more reminders of God's sovereignty, and then in verse 15 there are two allusions. One of them is to Pentecost, which is described in Acts chapter 2. And the other one is to the final blood sacrifice, which covers every corner of the altar. That language about the blood covering every corner of the altar is akin to Jesus saying, it is finished. The last drop of blood has been shed for the sacrifice and the remission of sin. Okay, so all the blood can stop now. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to every, everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for a lack, for lack of a shepherd. So, these two verses lead us into Verses 3 and 5, which we're going to talk a little bit about and are very important, but it's, these two verses are setting us up by talking about the fact that idols or false gods are always a challenge for all of us. Always a challenge for all of us. Okay? I, one of the things I do with premarital couples, it's like the only homework I give them other than they have to read Tim Keller's book on marriage, um, is, is I... Is I I, I, uh, from uh, Stuart Scott's book, The Exemplary Husband, I, I give him the three pages where he writes about idols, false gods, what they are, some examples of them, and why they're a problem. And I give that to them. I say, you got to read this. Take you five minutes to read it. Seven if you went to North High School like I did. I did. But at any rate, it'll take you just a few minutes to read it. Um, and, then, and then what I want you to do separately, okay, is I want you to come up with your top three false gods. Pray about it. Be honest, because I want you to know what you're getting yourselves into <laughs> with each other. We do a great job in the church, I think, of talking about how our idols disrupt our relationship with the one true God. What we don't do enough of is talk about how our idols, our false gods, disrupt our horizontal relationships too, especially in marriage. And, and so it's helpful if, if married couples kind of have an idea what they're getting themselves into, not to discourage them from getting married, although I know that is a strategy of some, <laughs> but rather to help you understand, okay, you've you got to realize what's going to trigger him, set him off, her off, those kinds of things. need to understand that. But then it leads us into verses 3 through 5. This is what God says, My anger is hot against the shepherds. And I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and I will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg. So remember the cornerstone and the tent peg. From him the battle bow, and from, every, and from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle. 
trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. So he's talking about here the problem of the people of God have shepherds and leaders, and those shepherds and leaders are leading them into the worship of false gods. That's what he's talking about here. I think it's kind of awkward for pastors to talk about themselves like this. But the Bible has no problem talking about pastors and elders and leaders that are corrupt. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about it. And so we should too. Because pastors are human too. Sometimes a little too human. (laughs) And we need correction and sometimes we need to be removed. By the way, I'm not advocating necessarily for that. I'm just saying that pastors need correction too. Pastors have weaknesses. They need to be held accountable. Um, Be concerned about a pastor who isn't interested in having any sort of accountability. Okay? And the reason that they need to be held accountable is because God really cares for his people. It's an issue of God caring for his people. He cares so much, in fact, that here... He abruptly moves from talking about the corrupt shepherds in verse 3 to talking about his ultimate good shepherd who's on the way in verses 4 and 5. So think about what James chapter 3 verse 1 says. Not many of you should become teachers or leaders or pastors or shepherds. That's what James is saying. Because you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So verses 4 and 5, verse 4 especially, talks about the cornerstone and the tent peg. The cornerstone represents the foundation of God's people. The tent peg represents the sustainability of God's people. And the foundation, both the foundation and the sustainability come from God's Messiah, the great shepherd, Jesus. Okay? Both salvation and sanctification come from God. His power and His Messiah. And then verse 5 is, is God saying, once again, there's going to be victory over the enemies of God's people. And it says, the Lord is with them. And again, there's, there, that's reminiscent, once again, of Joseph from, from uh, Genesis 37 through 50. The number of times that in Joseph's story, uh, the text tells us, and the Lord was with Joseph. Okay? Then the rest of chapter 10 is, is a discussion of God's restoration plan for Judah. So we've had that before in this series, and we've had the uh, God going after uh, his people's enemies. So that's why we're not dealing too much with that tonight when it comes up. But then comes chapter 11, which is kind of a strange chapter. The first three verses. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. These first three verses are again God saying, that all of these places of false god worship, all of these places of idol worship, and all of these places of violence against God's people are going to be judged and toppled by God. That's the good news. We can get on board with that, right? But in this case, he's not talking about Israel's enemies. In this case, the imagery is about the shepherds of God's people. We're going to topple those big oaks and cedars, those untoppable trees. He's talking about the shepherds, the leaders, the pastors, the priests of God's people who are corrupt. Not the good ones, the corrupt ones. And it is communicated in order to remind us that both God's people and his priests, neither one are are exempt from his discerning eye. Because the flock often follows blindly, and so too they will be held accountable. A lot of people say, I was led astray by my pastor. 
and believe that it exempts them from accountability, from being led astray, okay? The problem is, is that everybody as a follower of Jesus has a responsibility to live as God's people and to discern his will. And that means not our will, but his will. And that means service and sacrifice and humility and obedience, and it means doing the hard stuff, but it also means testing the spirits. And I will tell you, lazy people do not test the spirits. They just follow. They follow blindly. It takes work to test the spirits. We're told in the New Testament that we're supposed to test the spirits. We're supposed to be careful of leaders. Not suspicious, but careful. Okay? Well, maybe a little suspicious. It's, um, Michael Scott, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. Anyway, okay. And then verses 4 through 6. Thus, says, uh, thus said the Lord my God, become shepherds of the flock doomed to slaughter. What? Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, I've become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the, inhabit on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. Behold, I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and each into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none from their hand. So this is a picture, this paragraph is a picture of any shepherd who views the parishioners, the congregation, as chattel to be exploited for their benefit. Now I know that's never happened in the church in America ever, ever, ever. But it could. I just want to warn you that it could happen. Okay? And, and, and part of what God is saying here is that those shepherds are going to be judged. But, but part of what he's saying is also that the, the chattel, <laughs> the problem is they're not courageous enough to confront the corrupt pastors. And, and hear, me, hear me, this is not an excuse, as some have tried, this is not an excuse to simply get rid of all leadership in churches. I have a vision for a church that, that has absolutely no leadership. I'm going to plant a church that has no leadership. Okay, you're the leader. You're going to plant it. There's always a leadership vacuum. You have to have a leader. The Bible is clear that there have to be leaders. They have, the Bible has standards for the leaders. There are offices in the church. You can't just get rid of all the leadership and go there. That solves the problem. Okay? It's like saying all husbands in marriage are the problem. Well, wives are sinful too. Occasionally, there's a wife that causes a problem, and I know that's a shock to some of, at least half of you here. Okay? We're all sinful. So we're all going to have to deal with these hierarchies. So it's not a call to get rid of all leadership. Okay? But he calls for his leaders to never be corrupted or stained by the world. And I'll tell you something, it is a constant battle, just like it is for everybody else. It just is, okay? And when people go along unthinkingly with bad church leadership, they can't then blame shift to the leadership. This is one of the things he's saying. They're also held accountable. So, verses 7 through 14. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, and the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed three shepherds. We're not sure who those three shepherds are. And most scholars say they're just representative of any corrupt shepherd. That that's what it really is. Okay, And that's kind of where I land too. But I became impatient with them. And they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, the people who were following the shepherds. Okay. And they also detested me, so I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, here you go, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly 
price at which I was priced by them. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. I'll talk about that in a second. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So, God's vision is for favor and union. Favor and union. Favor is God's provision and protection. Union is the notion of the two becoming one. That's not just in marriage. That's Jew and Gentile. That's the church in Christ. It's his vision for his people that the two become one. So, favor and union. Like I said, we don't know... um, We don't know who these corrupt shepherds are specifically. But what we do find out from this passage is that very often, even when God, or an elder board, (laughs) rebukes a corrupt shepherd, very often the people rebel against God or against that elder board. Now think about that. Think about that. We found a corrupt pastor, a corrupt shepherd, We're going to discipline, we're going to take them out, we're going to banish them, whatever it is, the people do not say, oh, good. But very often what happens is the people rebel against those who are doing the discipline. They rebel against against God. I saw this play out years ago. This is like 25 years ago. I was asked to help mediate a situation in a church here in Phoenix where the lead pastor was married And he was having an affair, sleeping with the secretary who was also married to someone else. And and this wasn't conjecture, it wasn't speculation. They had very hard evidence. Okay? It was clear. Caught red-handed. And so we had to remove the pastor. You might think that that is an an offense that would rise to the level of removal for the pastor. We remove the pastor. And the church split. Not because they were unhappy that their pastor had betrayed them, but because half the church went with that corrupt pastor sleeping with his secretary as he planted a new church. Isn't that fascinating? Why would God write this stuff? This seems really far-fetched. Happens all the time. Church people detest God and his, and his call to live his way. So in verse 9, God says, you know what? If that's the case, I'm going to walk away too. I'm going to walk away too. I actually like that statement. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. If you're not going to be uh, gospel-centered, if you're not going to exalt Jesus, okay, then maybe you should die. Um, I'm reading a book right now about um, Garfield, James Garfield, president, I don't know, a few years ago. Um, like right after the Civil War, 1880 he was elected. And he was in church one day, and the guy that assassinated him uh, uh, was, in, was in that sermon. And, and Garfield recorded in his diary that the sermon was not very good. And apparently the reason was because the pastor never actually talked about Jesus. So uh, this guy Godot, I think is his name, that, who eventually uh, assassinated Garfield... During the sermon, he got so frustrated with the fact that the pastor never said anything about Jesus that he yelled out, What ye think about Jesus? (laughs) And Garfield wrote, That was really rude, but he was right. (laughs) There wasn't enough Jesus in the sermon. There wasn't any Jesus in the sermon. Okay? But then he also says, God also says, But whoever's left, they've not learned from this truth. And in fact, they they start devouring each other, vying for power. Again, I know it's hard to believe, but but people in churches can sometimes be really power hungry. Okay? It's very sad. In verse 10, so God removes his favor, and I'll just say, sometimes we ask for it. Why did God remove his favor from me? 
Well, if you weren't interested in, in subjecting yourself to his will, it's just possible that he's going to remove his favor. Okay? And then in verse 12, we see this 30 pieces of silver illusion, which we know um, was played out with Judas. What we don't necessarily get is that um, this is also a picture of treating someone as a slave because in the law, it required that if you uh, killed somebody's slave, you had to pay the person 30 pieces of silver. Now think about that as you think about Judas getting 30 pieces of silver for betraying Jesus. Here, it's God saying, my people are treating me like a slave. Isn't that ironic? Okay? It's very powerful uh, imagery. And then in verses 13 and 14, uh, this idea of the two becoming one, the people just aren't ready for it. There's too much rebellion. This is an allusion to the original split of Israel in 922 where we had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But it's also prophetic in that he knows our proclivities even today to refuse unity. We just struggle with unity. Okay? Uh, we were meeting today, um, a bunch of the pastors, uh, Tyler Johnson arranged for us to meet with a, uh, a pastor from Italy uh, who speaks three languages, including English, thankfully. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to understand anything he was saying. But um, his name is Giovanni, and... Um, one of the questions today was, he's, he's not, by the way, he's a, an evangelical pastor in Italy. I think there's like three evangelicals in all of Italy. The rest are Catholic, but he's one of them. Um, and uh, somebody asked him, what do you see as the biggest problem in the church today? And he didn't hesitate. He said division, a lack of unity, interestingly enough. So that's our proclivity even today. And then verses 15 through 17 then the Lord said to me, Take one, once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd, for behold, I am raising up in the, land of, uh, in the land a shepherd who does not care for those being destroyed, or seek the young, or heal the maimed, or nourish the healthy, but devours the f- flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let the arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blind. Now, why would God do this? That sounds pretty harsh. Well, this is both a history lesson and a, a peek at the future as corrupt leaders continue to rise up. Once again, this is not capriciousness on God's part, but a rebuke of his people who have been given so many chances to live as his people, to execute his call, and his people's constant rebellion against um, his wisdom for the purpose of their own desires. And what he says in love is, if this is what you want, this is what you shall have. If you've read Skeletons in God's Closet, Josh Butler's book, you know that, that, that that's one of the points he makes about hell. He, he says, we're, God is giving people exactly what they want. They desire to not be with God. Okay, that means you're outside of the city. Okay? So here's what we can understand. Very often, our own judgment is self-inflicted. We don't like to see it that way, but it is. So this is a needed and admittedly very difficult lesson in the midst of a book that is so much about grace. So here you go. Last three chapters. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. That's, that's a summary right there of Genesis chapter 1, <laughs> okay? Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. Then I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. So here you go. God is sovereign. God is creator. He's going to defend and protect, avenge and win. This is holy war. 
And, and holy war is God using his power on behalf of weak people, not powerful people appropriating God's uh, power for, for their own agenda. And it's funny, the, the picture, uh, a cup staggering. In other words, people will be made to look like they're drunk and delirious. Okay? A heavy stone. Okay? Um, the imagery here is the, the stone is heavier than it looks. So think about it this way. It's when any NBA team sees the Phoenix Suns on their schedule, and before the game is even played, they put a W next to the Suns. And then they come in, and the Suns blow them out, which occasionally happens. Okay? And then they're going to hurt themselves. Literally, hurt themselves is they're going to cut themselves. Have you ever grabbed something um, not expecting you're just going to grab something and then you get cut? You weren't expecting to get cut? You ever done that? Okay, I, yeah. Um, one time I stuck my hand into soapy water in a sink and somebody put a knife in there. Got cut. Wasn't really expecting that. Okay? So what he's saying, what this is saying is God is going to accomplish this. You know, we need to remember that God is going to do these things. And, and the, the obvious result is in verse 5. Others are going to look and see who God is. That's the result. It's a testimony. It's the same as Jonah chapter 1, uh, toward the end of chapter 1, when the sailors look at what has happened with Jonah's God, and they're like, hey, I think we ought to make a sacrifice to Jonah's God. Okay? And Jerusalem becomes the city of God. This is God's promise of restoration of his people and portends the new Jerusalem. And then verse 10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they will have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for his firstborn. Again, you you get the New Testament illusion there, right? You get that, right? Okay, I mean, that's John 3.16, essentially. Okay, so we can see why the New Testament authors and speakers really like Zechariah when it comes to Jesus. Um, I haven't, let me see, check time. Yeah, I can, I haven't talked about Hugh Ross in a long time. Anybody heard of Hugh Ross? Anybody else, Hugh Ross? Yeah, I, Greg and I have talked about it on Saturday mornings. It's what keeps me from falling asleep during our runs. Um, so Hugh Ross is uh, kind of a smart guy. He had two PhDs uh, in the sciences by the time he was 25, one in math and one in physics. I, I know the physics one is right. I think the other one is in math. Smart guy. Um, he decided one time that he was going to read all the religious texts in the history of the world to decide um, if any of them might possibly be true and test them scientifically. <laughs> and he was able to dispose of most of them rather quickly uh, about a month in the Quran, and he was done. That was, the, that was the toughest one up until the point he did the Bible. In the Bible, he, testi- he writes about this. He testifies that in the Bible, he was able to actually test what was in the, the Bible, even though it's not a scientific book, but he was able to test it scientifically and came to the... He, by the way, he was a non-believer until he did this exercise. He became a believer, and now he's one of the great advocates and apologists for the Christian faith. Okay? and a really, really smart guy. He's known as an astrophysicist. Tom Schrader used to say, they're the people that invented astroturf, okay? But he's a smart, smart guy. But in, in one of his books, he talks about how there's, there are 150 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, and Jesus has fulfilled every single one of them. Every single one of them. He says, here are the odds... If Jesus just fulfilled eight of the 150, here are the odds, and he gave this astronomical number with zeros that wouldn't fit on a board. Okay? And here's how he illustrated it. He said, the odds of Jesus uh, by chance being this Messiah rather than the fact that it was purposed by God is one in whatever to the 20th power, okay? And he said, it would be like this. Take the state of Texas, cover it knee-high with silver dollars. The entire state of Texas. 
cover it knee-high with silver dollars, take one silver dollar, dip it in red paint, and place it somewhere in Texas. Then you are blindfolded, and you start on the border of Texas and New Mexico, and you walk around in Texas until you are moved to bend over and pick up a silver dollar, and the chances of that silver dollar being the red silver dollar, that's the chances of Jesus just so happening to fulfill eight of the prophecies. He said, Jesus is the real deal, I believe. (laughs) That's how the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. Isn't that interesting? Okay. And then what comes next is fascinating. Chapter 13, verses 2 through 6. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. There's a lot here, okay? So here you go. Uh, we could say it this way, um, idolaters and bad pastors, bad shepherds, curtains for you. That's one way of saying this, okay? But the interesting thing here is that these false prophets will actually confess and take responsibility. These are the ones who are like, okay, you got me, you're right, I can't, I, I'm not going to do this anymore, okay? And check this out, even their parents are embarrassed of them and won't claim them, and rebuke them. They won't defend them. The par- even the parents. Ladies and gentlemen, this, right here in Scripture, this is the end of helicopter parents. The day of the Lord is going to be a great day, I'm telling you. Okay? And, and look at the words that are used. Cleansed, banished, remove. And verse 6 What are those wounds received in the house of my friends? Okay. When you and I join others, our supposed friends, in turning from God to idols and rebellion, our friends will end up hurting us. They will destroy us through their various falsehoods. They will wound us. It will be as if they had had, um, whipped us on the back. We just don't like to admit it. We just don't like to admit it. But all of us at one time or another have been burned or wounded by someone who leads us astray, right? Certainly we have. And then verse 2. Verse 2, very heavy on the idols. Uh, I'm just curious. Here you go. So, Steve, yes, here is a point where I would appreciate some participation, okay? What are our false gods today? And, And don't... Here you go. Don't just kind of generally throw out some stuff. I mean, think about what are the false gods? What are the idols here in Arcadia in our own congregation? What do you think they are? Politics, Politics certainly. Money. Money. Comfort is a big, big, big one. Control. Appearance. What was it? Security. There was another one I heard. I just didn't get it. Anybody? Anything else? Our children, yeah. Well, not your children, but my children. <laughs> what? Approval, affirmation. Tom Parker says we're affirmation addicts. Accomplishment, achievement, success, status, right? Fame. Remember that study that Cody quoted a few weeks ago? Um, about the 16, this, this study has been going on for 30 years. Every year they have these 16 values. And for years, fame was 15th or 16th. Now it's number one. In the 18 to 30-year-old age group, it's number one. Fame. I'm going to be a social media influencer. That's what I'm going to do for a job. 
I'm just going to try products and tell people what I think about them and get a million followers on YouTube and Twitter and Instagram, and then I can sell advertising. That's the new American dream. It used to be making the NBA or, or the NFL, you know. Isn't that something? Here, here's one. Here's one. Uh, Tyler James and I had lunch yesterday, and uh, Tyler James, for those of you who don't know, he's our family pastor. We talked about the idol of busyness. Busyness is an idol, especially in Arcadia. We're so busy. Okay, and we weren't kidding. It'll sound like we were kidding. It'll sound like we were being cynical, but we're not. We talked about having a one-night event where we were going to talk about the idol of busyness in Arcadia. And if you're too busy to come to it, you need to come to it more than anybody else. You need to stop everything else that you're doing and come to this thing. Okay? We don't want a lot of unbusy people coming to this. <laughs> okay? So God's saying, these idols are never going to fulfill you. You know? One of the things I recently learned about being made in the image of God, we talk about, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And we have all these discussions. And you know, I believe it's, we we're created for relationship and work because that's all over Genesis 1 and 2. And God worked, and God is in relationship, you know. God was koinonia, fellowship, before there was koinonia, okay? Um, but here's the other thing about being made in the image of God. If we're made in the image of something, that means that there has to be an original something, right? Okay? And that means that we have to stand with the original something, and then Genesis 3, sin came in and broke that standing that we had with that original something. And so now we're flailing around looking for something else to stand with. And that's when false gods were born. So we stand with wealth. We stand with busyness. We stand with comfort. You see that? That's why we have, we, we have, to, we have to stand with something. Okay? So the last parts of, of chapter 13 is a poem about the remnant of God and properly understood. It's a poem that reminds us that Jesus teaches that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom. Just saying it isn't enough. We have to believe it. We have to have faith and trust. You heard Josh this last Sunday say, how many of you believe in demons and Satan and, and spiritual warfare? And all these hands went up and he said, all right, how many of you actually pray like it? Oh. That was really good. And then 14, the book's end describes the final battle, and it's not going to be pretty. And a lot of people sitting around, I can't wait till Jesus comes again, the day of the Lord. It's going to be such a great day. It's going to be hard, even for those who are in. Okay? Ver, uh, chapter 14 is also about the ultimate victory, which gives us the remnant. It's about the resultant kingdom, the new Jerusalem, and it's about complete Holiness, the restoration of God's original plan and creation, all by God's sovereign will. So verses 1 through 6, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. That's, that's the, the ultimate battle, fight of the day of the Lord. It's ugly. It's really, really ugly. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord neither day or night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters 
shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now, if this description sounds vaguely familiar, it's because we find a very similar description in Revelation. Okay? There is no need for sun or moon once the new Jerusalem comes because the glory of God will always be our light. In verse 11, when you get down to verse 11, it says that Jerusalem will dwell in utter security. There will be no need for a wall anymore. Verses 12 through 19 describe the plague. Anybody remember Exodus? By the way, we're doing 15 weeks in Exodus in the fall of 2019. So here, just in case you're interested, and if you're not, you have to listen to me because I have the mic. Um, five weeks in Jonah right after um, Easter, then about 10 weeks in Philippians, verse by verse, two off weeks, or not like one-offs, we do whatever we want, and then 15 weeks in Exodus. We're going to cover the whole book of Exodus, and then Advent. I just said Advent, and it's only April. Isn't that cool? <laughs> All right, so 12 through 19 describe the plague that will come against those who refuse to acknowledge and worship the one true God. Here you go. That's in addition to what happens in verses 1 through 5, which sounded pretty bad already, right? Okay? But those who do worship will be part of the kingdom of God, and then you have the two concluding verses, 20 and 21. And on that day there shall be inscribed... On the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be known as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So, what God is saying is that holiness is the final destination of everything. It's a recreation, it's a restoration, really, of his original plan and purpose. And let's not be silly. Let's admit that holiness is actually a good thing. So, like I said, if this sounds vaguely familiar, I want to finish by reading a few verses from Revelation 21. And, and I know those of you who have been around when I do uh, uh, Old Testament stuff, it seems like I always end with reading about Revelation 21 and 22. Isn't that, does that start to tell you something maybe about what's going on in the Old Testament? That it always looks forward to what, what happens in... Or anyway, so Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, and then 22 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea was no more. That means there's no more chaos, there's no more darkness. There's no more pale that we live under. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, by the way, it prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here you go. You can't escape that two shall become one language in the Bible. Um, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's good news. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So there won't be a temple, won't be any need for it. The city is the temple. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is testable, detestable or false, but only those who are written on the Lamb's book of life. That's Zechariah pointing us toward the new Jerusalem. So I will see you Sunday. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for uh, Zechariah, his very strange but relevant and poignant visions. Thank you for your grace and mercy, but also thank you for your power, your judgment, and your discernment because we need it all. Uh, God, help us to embrace who you are, and as Paul says, to be wise by submitting to your will. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.